Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 108. Our guest today is Ed Epley, a leading global expert in professional management, sales strategy, and performance management. He has trained managers in multinational companies across the U.S., Europe, China, Japan, and Australia. In his new book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, Ed breaks down these disciplines critical for today's professional manager. Good morning, Ed. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Good morning. Great to be here. It's great to have you on board. And Ed, as you know, writing a book is quite a commitment of time and energy. Tell us what inspired you to write this book. Oh, probably several different things that prompted it. One was feeling that as I've entered this last phase of my career, an obligation just to capture all the different things that I feel like I've learned, especially over the last 25 as I've been really working with other organizations on a regular basis. And then the other piece was just requests from a number of clients and individuals at different times saying, if I'd like to learn more, where would I go? And it was simply trying to respond to a need that seemed to be there. And today's professional manager has many challenges facing them in their business. And some of them have been with us forever. And there's been a few new ones of recent additions. What are some of the biggest challenges a business leader or management pro is facing today? Well, I think the challenges are very similar for the size of business, the age of the business, where they are in what we like to refer to as the death cycle of the business, and then also the competitive landscape in which they operate. So when you factor all those things in, the symptoms of challenges are very, very similar. But having said that, in today's environment, I think that number one is getting people to be aligned and making sure that they're committed fully to whatever it is that the organization says they're going to do and why they're doing it. And then I think the other piece is just continually the cry for talent. You know, I'm not the first to say there's a war for talent going on out there. And so organizations are trying to make sure that they have the right people in the right places. And nobody's in a position where they can simply go out and hire who they need. It's mostly now a factor of people having the wherewithal to create a lot of that talent within their own ranks. Ed, let's take a step back here and talk about this death cycle, (laughs) because it seems to me if I'm trying to inspire new employees to come work for my company, uh, framing it as what stage in our death cycle we're in might not be the best way to attract that talent. Tell us more about that. Well, a good friend of mine, Dr. Ted Prince from Perth Leadership, he's a behavioral finance guy. It's his terminology, but as I think it worked with you, it's fairly disruptive terminology because in his opinion, and frankly, I think in everybody's, when once you think about it, it's not a question of if you're going out of business, it's more a question of when. And one of the things that I see routinely is most businesses don't get to go out of business on their own terms, especially the closely held ones. You know, it's a factor of either lacking an exit strategy, or if they do have one, they don't operate in a manner consistent with it. So as a result, when the owner is really ready to go out of business or transition to somebody else, the options they have are very, very limited. What do you think causes that? As you know, we know why a lot of people start businesses, but why this lack of foresight into where they want to end up? Well, one, they've never really thought about it. And having been in that 
situation a couple of times. The first couple of businesses I started, there was no thought about, well, how would I stop being in that business? And, you know, was I going to try to extract myself from that by selling the business where I could get some return on investment for the equity I had? Or was I just going to end it or never occurred to me that you should have to think about that? But after being caught in that dilemma a couple of times, and then certainly with a number of my clients, what I've learned is that simply you're focused on survival initially and then growing the business. And also so many entrepreneurs, identity is caught up in the entity that they've created. And as a result of that, the whole premise of not being in that business is tantamount to having to come to grips with the fact that they probably don't have a very balanced life. They've been pretty one-dimensional in a lot of respects. And was there a moment in your pursuit of a business where you had that light bulb (laughs) epiphany of like, wow, I am completely engaged and I have no idea where I'm going and I don't know what to do next? Yeah, actually, it happened more than once, Shai. Oh, good. So it's not just me then. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you don't recognize it's a problem initially, right? Sometimes you don't even come to grips with the fact that there's something that you're not considering that you should. I had an advertising agency, my very first business I started out when I was an adult. And in that situation, I was just, again, so focused on survival that I didn't realize how consumed I was by the business. And I paid some prices for that personally. And then in another engagement I had when I was more mature and and certainly should have been aware of it, again, the market forces, 2007, 8, 9, we were in the trading business. And with that downturn in the economy, the discretionary dollars that would normally be spent on training were gone. And so, again, it was now just focus on, okay, how are we going to change the business model? What do we do to make sure that we stay viable? And starting to come to grips with, well, are we going to go out of business because we can't adjust quick enough? Or is this something that we need to really think about changing? And then along all of that was just, am I in the wrong place? You know, am I not the right person to be doing this? Mm -hmm. You start to question your own abilities at times, right? Sure. Along those lines, in your book, you mentioned quite a bit about turning professional When does a leader really feel like they've gone from amateur to professional? What have you seen? You know, it's fun to think about it. And it's fun when you get to watch it. Because usually what I see in most executives, and I'm even talking in Fortune 100 companies, they're all doing the functions of professional management. It's not like you can be in business and not have to pay attention to those six disciplines. But the vast majority of people have really never been taught to do them. And so a lot of times you don't know what you don't know, even when you're operating a business that could be considered successful. But then once they get exposed to the concept of professional management, they see the linkage to it. You start to see the aha in their eyes and the conversations start to change pretty dramatically as they start to more frequently get ahead of the business. And what I mean by that is they're more frequently thinking in a proactive mode rather than reactive and helping their teams do the same. Because as I'm sure you have witnessed either in your own organizations or others that you've been around, is so often they're feeling like victims to what goes on. And it's not a good place. And so as they start to recognize what they don't know, start to recognize the connections between these disciplines, all of a sudden the cadence picks up with the business. Frankly, their enjoyment of the business tends to go up because they feel more in control. 
And Ed, in your book, you've got six disciplines that are critical to today's professional manager, and they're very good segments and really deep. So the book really goes in nicely into each one of these six disciplines. One of them is strategy. And can you give us an example where you've seen a shift in the strategy playing a major role in the success of a company? There's a couple of components to that, if you don't mind, if I kind of lead up to it. One, for a lot of businesses, the whole beginning to strategy is just simply being able to say no to certain things because so many of them don't want to go through the emotional pain that they think they're going to have of saying, we will not do business in a certain way or we'll no longer try to attract certain kinds of customers because they've grown up, if you will, with just any business is good business. So that's the first piece of this. And I would say that's fairly universal with between small, closely held businesses. And as you get into the $40, $50 million range, it starts to become really important for organizations to be able to make that choice to say no. But then if I think about a couple of firms One's a professional services firm down in Cincinnati, Hyperquake. Colin Crotty is the CEO down there. And he's done a wonderful job of continuing to get more and more laser focused about what they will offer. And then also recognizing he has two kinds of clients or customers. And I think his choice of words are fairly powerful because he says people who understand the whole branding business, which they're in, and understand what his organization really tries to do and the way they go about it, they call churched. They have the gospel, if you will, and they understand the whole lexicon and also the approach to it. And then the unchurched clients that they sometimes do business with, which tend to be very transactional, and they acknowledge they probably treat them differently because of that, they call unchurched. And I just thought it was an interesting way to think of your strategy is there are those people who get it and there's those people who don't. And It's not that you won't do business with people who don't get it, but they're not going to value what you do nearly as much. It's going to be a transaction rather than a relationship. So that's one. The other organization that comes to mind, the folks out at Steamboat, Ski and Resort Company, I get to do business with them. And watching them recognize that they have these distinct kinds of people who come there has really been fascinating. And the industry is a flat industry. There's not a whole lot more people skiing this year or snowboarding this year than last year. So there's a lot of competition for that resort dollar. But the whole segmentation that they do and the ability to make sure that they have an offering that aligns with that and consistent with their brand has allowed them to continue to grow in terms of their results, even when the actual number of people overall in the industry have not gone up. You mentioned Steamboat, and uh, I know Shai is a snowboarder, and I decades of skiing from the past, and I've been to Steamboat, and they really focus on knowing their clientele. And so you really do feel like they've aligned a segment for you. Yeah. Which, which brings up a whole area, especially in a ski environment with the number of employees and the people of development, one of the largest challenges professional leaders have. Comment a little bit about, from a ski resort standpoint, how that relates to some of the other industries. Well, the underlying fundamentals to which I subscribe are that, first of all, that a manager's job exists in part to produce results and to grow people. And the growing people is not just preparing them for future advancement, but more importantly, it's to help them improve their personal productivity year over year. 
And that's rooted in the premise that Peter Drucker speaks to, that the cost of doing business goes up by 3 to 5% every year. No matter what you do to contain your cost, it's going to be more expensive in 2018 than it was in 2017. So if people's productivity individually and collectively don't keep up with that, then the organization profitability and sustainability erodes. And that's just a harsh business reality that we operate in in today's environment. So with that as a backdrop, then part of what every manager needs to be doing is to have those conversations with each of her or his people about how I need to get better at my job. And one of the problems, guys, that this conversation quickly evolves into if you're not prepared for it is when you tell me you need me to get better at my job, what I'll hear is that I'm failing. And the second thing I'll hear is that you want me to work harder. Neither of which is really the intent of becoming more productive because being more productive is getting more output with the same or less input. So it's really about how do we change the behavior, the skill that I exhibit so that I can actually produce a better result or greater results with the same amount of effort. Absolutely. Developing your people and also helping to develop the culture around those people and with those people. It's so evident when you're going to businesses that are retail or serving the public to see which ones get it and which ones don't. And I know in some of your seminars and sessions that you hold with leadership around the world that those leaders that show up, you're putting them through a lot of exercises to really get them to think about it. And you've documented it so well in the book. So it's fascinating some of these profound questions that get them to think about their people development and their culture and how they structure that performance. And I like your analogy of, you know, are they churched? And that applies to the staff. Yeah. Again, because this war and talent, and this comes back to the whole premise that so much of this professional management approach, the disciplines are linked. I mean, if you let somebody on board, which a lot of companies, and I've done the same thing, when you let somebody on board in your team or your organization, who's really not a cultural fit because you need the body and their technical skills probably are very attractive to you, you almost always pay a price for that in that that person's ability intuitively to act like you need them to is probably not nearly as good as somebody else who's a better fit culturally. So I do think the one thing I see with the clients that I tend to work with, if they're not already at that mindset that they're very judicious, very stingy about letting anybody become part of the team that shouldn't, they tend to become that way because they see the cost that you have with that. You know, one of the things that Steamboat Ski and Resort Company, one of the things that they're business requires is that from Thanksgiving to mid-April, they jump from being 400 employees to about 2,000. Now, a lot of those people are returning veterans, if you will, but I just think that's a remarkable thing to make sure that people who have not been part of the organization for some period of time have to re-engage and recommit to what the organization is. And it's just amazing to me, given the amount of effort that the executives and the managers of the organization make, how well they do that and how routine it is to get an exceptional experience there. So I think they are really good at that whole piece of creating the right culture where people development and people engagement really happens on an ongoing basis. What are the kinds of things they do, Ed? Can you give us an example of a few things they do under those extraordinary circumstances to uh, get that message across to these seasonal workers? Shy, they always start with an all-managers meeting, which precedes the return of the vast majority of the temporary folks. And that really sends a signal about, here's the theme, here's the focus for this next season. So that's very well orchestrated and thought through. 
And then the other piece is they keep that cadence and that conversation going, not only with the managers, but the managers then in turn make sure they're doing that with their folks through the season. And a lot of those folks are working 60, 80, 100 hours a week for 17 weeks. And so it would be real easy to go off script, but it's remarkable the discipline that they exhibit with that. And then the other thing is they've done a lot better job over the last five to eight years at providing those, I guess what I'd call them is those mile markers along the way where we're going to celebrate, we're going to provide recognition, both formal and informal, so that people know that people that manage around them and lead them are paying attention. So they don't just say that this is important. They acknowledge it and they try to make sure people are hearing that they're appreciated when they see them doing it. So Ed, there's a lot of great leadership out there and some that's not so great. Can you give us some insight? Yeah, that's one area where my thinking has really altered or evolved, I think, over the last uh, 25, 30 years. In that I used to think of that as I think a lot of the traditional qualities of being interested in people and engaging and somewhat charismatic. And now I've moved more and more to the whole premise that the real effective indicator in my mind of somebody's ability to be a great leader first is how self-aware are they? How much do they know their strengths and weaknesses and their biases and their likelihood to be in a spot that's intuitive or not for them? And the more that an individual is aware of that and knows that and believes it, then I think the better able they are to make adjustments, in some cases get trained, and in other cases provide some kind of mitigation so that when they're not in a best situation for them where they are not going to be intuitively their best, that they can do something about it. And then I think the other component of that is there's an authenticity that they are who they are and they're not trying to be someone else. So when you have those two things put together, I think it's much easier for that person then to decide the right time and place to behave a certain way, and that they're not always exactly predictable. Those are the things that I really look for in the people's capacity to lead. And I think that the other component of that is most of the great leaders that I know tend to be continuing to learn. They run through the finish of the race. They don't ever stop becoming better at their craft of leading. Ed, let's talk a little bit more about structure. We see this challenge a lot in small and growing organizations. Where do we fall down and what can we do to correct that? There's a guy named Robert Fritz. He has a book that he co-authored, and forgive me, I forget the other gentleman, but it's called The Managerial Moment of Truth. And in that book, he refers to the fact that the structure of the business, which as he defines it, which I agree, it's the way you deploy all of your resources. So it's not just uh, people, but it's the money, facilities, time, compensation, for example, would be part of structure in his mind. He says 70% of all the problems that a company faces comes from its structure. And initially I thought that's way, way too high. I thought it was, you know, more leadership or strategy or culture, but more and more, I think what I see is organizations play whack-a-mole in when they have a structure that does not align with their strategy they end up having these workarounds or these other negative situations, I'll call them, that arise and they attack them. And as they push down on it, you know, play whack-a-mole with it, they think they're making progress, but then it pops up looking like something else when it's still a symptom of the fact they never fixed the structural issue that's causing the problems that they have. So it's not a very glamorous thing to think about, but I will tell you so many organization structures don't match their strategy. And so now you have these extra energies and efforts and a lot of times heroic individual effort that have to be deployed in order for the company to be successful. 
It makes a lot of sense, Ed, when you frame it that way. I'm curious, where can a business owner start, given all of these challenges around leadership and management? Where's a good place to start if you want to assess where you are today and take a step towards moving forward? Well, I think this is where I'm supposed to say I wrote a book, <laughs> but I feel like that's a little, <laughs> little too self-promotional. To, but I would tell you that I'm really biased towards Aileron. There are organizations, I'm sure other ones out there, but Aileron is a not-for-profit entity that is dedicated to helping business owners and executives understand and learn to be better professional managers. And they have a very simple way to do it. It's not overly expensive, a couple thousand dollar investment, and you're well on your way to this. And they're not trying to sell you other stuff. So their motives, I think, are highly pure, relatively speaking. I think those would work well. I think another organization that's in the same vein is called Smart Giants. Their attempt is to help organizations run quality businesses rather than ones focused on quantity. So I don't know of a lot of others, but I know that in this part of the country, those are ones that I can recommend to almost anybody that's serious about it. Well, Ed, thank you for joining us today and sharing your knowledge and insights. It's been a pleasure, and I appreciate the thoughtful questions and the opportunity to spend some time with you and your audience. Oh, thank you. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you ask about where people can start their journey if they're serious about this. On my website, theepleygroup.com, we have a self-assessment that you can take, which would help to at least start to get you thinking about of the six disciplines, which one or ones may be the low-hanging fruit that could help you in getting to better results. And of course, in the book called Let's Be Clear, we have more specific and I'd say more detailed ideas of what people can do if they're interested in any of the specific disciplines. Our guest today has been Ed Epley, author of the new book for business professionals. Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines for Focus Management Pros, provides a sustainable, straightforward approach to growing business leadership excellence. You can learn more about Ed, as well as find links for his book and the free leadership self-assessment in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Aligned for Business, provider of business consulting and executive coaching. That's Aligned, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, we would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.